0: I need you to like musicals, I need you to like musicals, I need you to like musicals. I know you think they're sappy and bland, and you hated La La Land, but I gotta make you understand, they can be profound and beautiful, so I need, need you to, to like musicals. Both reach for the home. Are you still here? That was a test. That was a test to see if you're a true fan of I Need You to Like Musicals, if you're willing to sit through that nonsense. That that was the barrier for entry today. Welcome, folks, to I Need You to Like Musicals. My name is Chris, and I Need You to Like Musicals. Today, we're going to talk about a couple shows with very little in common except for um, some uh, smart-ass connection that I made in the title to the episode and uh, the fact that there are Hungarian elements to both. That's it. That's about it. Before we get to these shows, let's uh, check in uh, on a couple of things here. It is late October, year 2023, which can only mean one thing. I turn 40 uh, a week from Tuesday. So uh, that's what's going on with me. And uh, I'm having a party at my house for my 40th birthday. Which, if you asked me on my 30th birthday and my 20th birthday, if that would be anything that would ever happen, I would probably say you were crazy. Uh, I don't throw parties. Well, a, a party's being thrown on my behalf. And um, I'm I'm very, uh, I'm very appreciative of the fact that it's happening because I never would have done it myself. And uh, I do the thing that uh, maybe a lot of us do, uh, which is uh, push people away and then wonder why there are no people around. So this has been an exercise in uh, discovering that maybe I have more friends than I think I have. And we're not all alone in this world, are we, folks? Um, but the thing is, I think the last party that I ever threw, that I was ever the host of, was uh, in high school, in 12th grade. And what I learned at this party, uh, or I don't know if I learned it, if it's the truth, or if I allowed myself to take have this takeaway, was uh, nobody likes me. <laughs> Uh, What it was, was um, there was a, what was it? Not the SAT, the the PSAT. I know that it's all upside down now and it doesn't matter if you take the SAT. But there was a PSAT and an SAT. And you really only took the PSAT if you were in 10th or 11th grade. But if you were in 12th grade, you didn't need to take that thing. So there was no school the day of the PSAT, so I I said, I'm going to throw a party. Uh, the night before that and everyone's gonna come to my party who's in 12th grade or maybe 9th grade um, No uh, girls came to this party that was the the first uh, takeaway that uh, it, this was a this turned into a male-only party and I, uh, I for years I uh, saw that as evidence of the fact that I was uh, maybe a repellent uh, person in uh, to, uh, in high school towards women which may very well have been true um, here's what I think, here's, here's my fear of throwing a party, that, uh, let's just say the party's at 8pm. At 8pm, uh, nobody's there. And then at 8.20, let's say, uh, one or two people show up, and they look around and nobody's there, and they say, oh, I, I thought you were having a party. And then they sit there and you have to talk to them and give them chips, and then you watch them looking for a reason to leave. That's what, uh, that's the nightmare of throwing a party, in my mind. But, uh, we got a healthy amount of RSVPs for this thing. I'm looking forward to it. I think it'll be good. And I'm going to, uh, I'm going to not worry about it. I'm going to not take it personally if nobody comes. So, um, there we go. Boy, I talked for four whole minutes about this. Let's uh, talk about musical theater, shall we? That's what we're here to do. I have uh, a piece of musical theater news for you folks. And uh, I wish it was good news. Unfortunately, it's uh, I have some dreadful news. That is, The Who's Tommy is returning to Broadway in 2024. Good God. Now, as if this weren't bad enough, I want to explain to you the uh, rationale be- behind doing this. As we learned on our uh, Karaoke Hell episode one, about when we talked about Who's Tommy, um, it's written by Pete Townsend of The Who, and with a book by Des McAniff, from uh, La Jolla. Here's what Des McAniff says in this article. In many ways, I think the world has caught up to Tommy Walker, which makes it exciting to revisit the Who's Tommy for a new generation, who, possibly more than any other, has a broad appetite for all kinds of music and storytelling. That's so stupid. Because it's one kind of music, and it's failed storytelling. The article goes on to say, while the music remains as glorious as ever, our world years later is unimaginably and irrevocably changed. As a result, there's so much more we can all recognize and celebrate in our protagonist's evolution as a collective deeper understanding of mental health has sharpened our lens. Tommy Walker's triumph over devastating childhood trauma to enlightened leadership to ultimately recognizing the folly in which he surrounded himself is a amazing journey to discover anew. Uh, no. No. No, 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 no. <laughs> you're wrong. Because this whole idea of uh, narrativizing our lives through trauma, I think that we're at the tail end of that culturally. We're, you're behind the curve here. Maybe uh, you would have done done a little better with that in you know, circa 2021 or 2019. I feel like we're all coming out of that. I could be wrong. Maybe I'm projecting. Maybe it's just me maybe my uh perception of life is changing and that i i think that uh, the the, uh, the the trauma narrative of life is uh, limited but uh i don't know i get the sense that it's they're going to be some johnny come latelys on this if that's what if that's their mission statement to capture the zeitgeist in that way i think they're late to the party let's talk about the shows that we're going to talk about today though um I I need to tell you something before we do, though. I have already paused this twice to use the restroom, and we're at the seven-minute mark, and I need to do it a third time. I have a medical issue. Hold hold on one second. Okay, we're back. This is one of the challenges of recording the podcast in the morning uh, after two cups of coffee and a can of Celsius. (sighs) I think we'll be good for a while. Um, Let's talk about the shows. The shows for today, folks, are Chicago and She Loves Me. The first show we're going to talk about, however, is Chicago. Now, um, this is week two of covering the career of Bob Fosse. We have not dealt with any Fosse up to this point, but um, I feel like this is the big one. I feel like the look of this show is instantly recognizable as Fossean. Maybe the culmination of the Fosse aesthetic. I don't know. He lived for another decade after this show and did a couple other things, but this feels like um, if you think Bob Fosse, you think then all that jazz with the fucking hat and the tilting of the hat and the thing. So um, I feel like I'm new to the Bob Fosse school, even though I haven't seen a single new uh, Fosse show I haven't seen. Uh, I only talked about Pippin and this one, both of which were in my uh, mental canon from high school. But I think in reconsidering Pippin and digging into the making of it and digging into this one, I feel that I I, I like Bob Fosse more than I thought that I did. And I feel like he deserves credit for um, the changes that happened on Broadway in the 1970s and to some extent the 60s. I think what made me not get into Fosse when I was younger was the fact that I was uh, not anti-dance, but I just didn't... In, have any interest in shows with a lot of dancing because I was a wannabe musical theater performer. I was a musical theater kid and uh, I decided early on that I couldn't dance or that the fact that I was six foot five uh, made the idea of me dancing uh, unlikely. Uh, that's, that's a regret that I have. If there are any kids out there that listen to this, any uh, musical theater kids in high school that are uh, uh, height outliers, I learned about this in a, a, a quantitative reasoning class that was required by my community college a few years back, that uh, if you're six foot five, it means you're an outlier and that you're too tall. Um, don't give up on dancing. Now, I know that everybody's saying to you, "You tall guys can dance. Look at Tommy Tune. And then you watched a YouTube video of Tommy Tune dancing, and it was the most uh, repellent thing you'd ever seen in your life. It looked like an octopus with legs all over the place. Um You should still uh, put your best foot forward uh, No pun intended, folks And uh, learn to dance Because I love uh, dancing now I like to watch it when it's good So uh, I wish I'd learned to dance This is a very uh, Chris-focused show so far Let's try to uh, spin it towards (laughs) the, the task at hand Well, one of the Bob Fosse dictums that I learned is uh, that you should make love to the audience. Ooh. okay. And I was thinking about this. Kind of creepy, uh, in a sense, but also makes sense if you look at his work. And I was wondering what it would be like if there had ever been a Fosse-Sondheim collaboration. Now, it may have been just too many cooks in the kitchen, right? Maybe it would not have worked well together. I mean, maybe you would have... It depends on what the material was, obviously. But the fact that they both uh, had a big hand in elevating the form to an art form, and the fact that Sondheim uh, is this sort of Cartesian head in a jar that uh, appeals to your head and heart, and is both like intelligent and cerebral, but also tugs at your heartstrings. And then Fosse is this very... Physical, tactile, uh, he's gonna fuck you. Uh. <laughs> like, I wonder what that would be like to bring all those elements together. Maybe you shouldn't. I mean, maybe that's not a thing that should happen. It, there's such a thing as, uh, you know, too much goodness in one thing. Maybe it, its it would be crowded. There's a chance that Fosse needed to work with, um, you know, middling composers. <laughs> Which I'm not saying that he did. I mean, I, I, I enjoy aspects of Kandor and Ebb and, uh, what's his name? Stephen Schwartz. And then Sondheim needed to work with, um, you know, choreographers that were just uh, journey, what? Journey? What am I trying to say here? Uh, but Choreographers that were like for hire, that didn't have the Fosse uh, thing. But he worked with Harold Prince, and I think Harold Prince, uh, you you couldn't really identify a Harold Prince style, right? He's a great director, and was a great uh, collaborator for Sondheim, but there was not really a Harold Prince aesthetic. I could be wrong about this, Uh, let me know if I am, I don't know. Now the thing with Chicago uh, that cannot be ignored if you watch it today, is uh, the idea of true crime which is has taken the world by storm. I mean, it's always been there, obviously, because of uh, the history of Chicago, which we're going to get into, uh, about sensationalizing a murderer. Uh, that's a big theme that runs throughout here. It was not a big hit on Broadway in 1975 when it opened, uh, but the revival was a big hit. uh opened in 1996, one year after the O.J. Simpson verdict. Coincidence? I don't think so and blah, 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 Casey Anthony, all of this. I feel like this idea of uh, sensationalizing a murderer and uh, people murdering for uh, social cachet and fame is just so overdone at this point. And I think I said in our Ragtime episode, it was overdone by the time that Evelyn Nesbitt business happened and that, where it's just, it's not a novel idea. It's not like, oh, that's interesting. It's uh, somebody became a star because they were involved in a murder. And um, I don't know, I mean, it's, they don't publish the manifestos of mass shooters anymore, because I think that the idea is that you don't want to give notoriety to a killer. And I, I, I'm unconvinced that there's an epidemic of people killing for notoriety. I mean, I'm not saying nobody did, but, uh, I don't know. I get that you want to do whatever you can to prevent a mass shooting, and if you don't tell people the point of, or the manifesto of a mass shooter, then maybe it'll discourage further mass shootings that want their manifestos read. Um, but, uh... I don't know I, I always I always want to read them man I mean I want to read the Ted Kiz- uh, the Ted Kaczynski stuff is fascinating if you've ever read any of that and when Charles Manson is not barking like a dog and trying to scare you with the swastika on his forehead he has a thing or two to say that is uh, uh, raises your eyebrows and makes you think I mean it's I don't know who cares it's not the point of this um, but true crime as we all know, uh, is having a bit of a renaissance uh, so often in podcast form starting 10 years ago. All, God is almost 10 years ago that serial started makes me feel old guys. And then um, my favorite murder, which is a podcast that I enjoyed for many years until I stopped listening to it because I felt like it was um, I was having it was unconsciously uh, making me unhappy. <laughs> There's a female instinct towards this, and it's uh, it's not a mystery. It's catharsis. It's back to our old pal Aristotle. He told us all about this. Because, <clears throat> you know, uh, women uh, are obviously more at risk for uh, being attacked in a dark alley than my six-foot-five ass is. I can walk through a dark alley without thinking about that once or twice or three times. Um, The only time I ever think about that is the rare occasion when I run into somebody taller than I am. Uh, That happened to me in a liquor store once, and I had an immediate feeling of panic. (laughs) It was weird. I never see anyone taller than me. And the one time I did, in a liquor store, after dark, I instantly became afraid for my life. In a way, I was like, why? It's okay, man. That's just some guy buying chips. So, um... But yeah, it's it, it's the same reason that people like horror movies and things uh, and, and the, the reason that people like tragedies like Oedipus Rex. It's because they uh, are experiencing the tragedy on the stage uh, and uh, so the uh, whatever, you understand. I'm not going to sit here and fucking mansplain why women like to listen to true crime podcasts. I will say that I worked with a lady in uh, an office context once Who was a huge fan of my favorite murder, and then one day said, "I don't understand why people like horror movies. Why would you like to be scared?" And um, I didn't make this argument to her, and then uh, for years after that, wished I had. That's the kind of person I am. That's the kind of uh, I. uh, I have. uh, I'm great in an argument uh, later at home after I'm not with the person anymore. So, uh, yeah, Chicago. You know what's interesting is I've been to Chicago a handful of times, but only passing through. I've never spent any significant time in Chicago. I, like, uh, when I went to... The first time was, like, when I went to Iowa for my sister's wedding. I landed, the plane landed in Chicago before I was deathly afraid of flying. I don't know if I've talked too much about my uh, fear of flying that arised later in life, but... Uh, so yeah, and then also because I was so afraid of flying later, uh, when I had to get to New York City, I took a fucking train. I took an, uh, f- a, f- a five-day odyssey on train from Los Angeles to New York City. And Chicago is where all the trains stop. Uh, so I had a little layover in Chicago, uh, hung out with my friend Dan, had uh, got a dog and beef. and uh, took a shower because you can't shower on a four day train I'll tell you that much especially if you're in steerage or whatever I was in coach I didn't have a private car I had just uh, a seat to sleep in (sighs) Chicago 1975 Broadway starring Gwen Verdon um, Fosse's longtime uh, wife collaborator and muse and Chita Rivera one thing I didn't really know about Um, when I was listening to Chicago as a young man, is the background of it and the source material. Because all of it seems uh, a little um, hyperbolic. This idea of everybody is so uh, interested in the fame of these uh, female killers or alleged killers. But uh, here's the deal. So it was based on a play written by a crime reporter in 1926. Uh, this uh, was uh, the, the, the name of the woman that wrote this play. Did I not write it down? What the fuck? Her last name is Watkins. I'm the worst, give me one second. Okay, Maureen Dallas Watkins. She was a crime reporter for the Chicago Tribune, or the Trib, as they like to call it in Chicago. Hey, did you read the Trib? Hey, let's get a beef and read the Trib. You wanna get a brat? Read the Trib. Um, it's uh, It was a fictional satire. But it was based on act- two actual court cases. That of uh, Beula Annan, uh, whom Roxy Hart was based on, and Belva Gartner, whom Velma Kelly was based on. Uh, Anon was uh, 23 years old in 1924, and um, she killed a guy uh, very much in the way that Roxy Hart did. Uh, killed Fred Casely. And she played the Foxtrot record Hula Lou over and over again for two hours and then called her husband to say that she'd killed a man who tried to defile her. Now, uh, tell me if this sounds familiar. Her husband uh, was a mechanic named Albert, and he spent every cent that he had on her defense, and then uh, the day after she was acquitted, she dumped him. There you go. Pretty true to uh, what happens in the musical. Uh, Velma's story is a little, departs a little bit more. Uh, Gartner was a cabaret singer, which is, you know, that's like Velma, but her lover was found shot to death in a car. Our eyewitnesses said that they saw her get into the car and then they heard gunshots. She was also acquitted. And I guess the point of this book and the point of um, Watkins' coverage of these tr- tr- trials is that the pretty girls... <laughs> Seemed to get acquitted uh, during this uh, lady murderer craze of the 20s in Chicago. Um, So she's at the Trib writing about this, and the Trib is mostly on the side of the prosecutors. They're mostly uh, these stories about, oh my god, these killers. But uh, at the same time, the Hearst Papers, uh uh-oh, William Randolph Hearst, Citizen Kane, are uh, pro-defendant, and that's where the whole idea of the Sob Sisters comes in, of these female journalists that are writing, oh, isn't it awful that this poor woman is being persecuted and she didn't kill anybody, Uh, like Mary Sunshine, a character in Chicago. This play becomes a silent film by Cecil DeMille in 1927. I hope everyone was ready for their close-up. Then uh, it becomes a talkie in 1942, starring Ginger Rogers, but it's called Roxy Hart, and they changed the story and they made it so that she was innocent. And that's boring. I've never seen it, but <clears throat> no interest. Fuck that. I don't need Roxy Hart to be innocent. And then uh, in the 1960s, Gwen Verdon, who we talked about last week, she was the wife and muse and what, I just said it, who cares, the, of, of Bob Fosse. Check out uh, Fosse slash Verdon on FX. She reads the play by Watkins and she asks her husband, Bob Fosse, uh, can we make this into a musical? Let's, uh, let's, let's do this." And so Bob Fosse asked the author, Maureen Dallas Watkins, I did write it down, it's right here, uh, many times. He, he keeps on asking her for the rights and she keeps on saying no. The reason she says no is because she feels guilty that she glamorized these women and uh, helped them walk free with her articles and she doesn't want to further glamorize these women who she believes were definitely killers keeps on saying no, she dies in 1969 and here we go, her estate sells the rights, and it's time to make a musical. It's kind of shitty, isn't it? We should respect the wishes of the dead. (laughs) There still is no Catcher in the Rye movie, uh, so that's good. Um, Gwen Verdon of course is in it, and so is Cheetah Rivera, like I said. Also Jerry Orbach, the late, great Jerry Orbach, boy. Do I love Jerry Orbach? He wanted, he's the he wanted us to try to remember the kind of September when uh, all those things were happening. Eventually, uh, Liza Minnelli gets in there too. She's a replacement for a while. And uh, also, Anne Ranking, who... Uh, let's get into Anne Ranking later, because it's very interesting, uh, Anne Ranking's role in all this and in the life of Fosse. So um, Fred Ebb and John Kander write the score. And you know Kandor and Ebb, they wrote um, Cabaret. That was the big hit that they were coming off of when they wrote this. And they did Kiss of the Spider Woman, all kinds of things. There's a real... Uh, that's an actual <laughs> riff from Chicago, but you, you know what I'm saying? It's, it's their uh, old-timey uh, r- revivalist uh, spirit of uh, jazz uh, age things. <clears throat> um... I imagine we'll talk about Cabaret eventually if the show continues, but um, a quick anecdote about Cabaret. Last year, I got a gig as a uh, temporary rehearsal pianist for a college production of Cabaret from somebody I knew. The musical director was going out of town. And they needed somebody to do uh, rehearsal pianist stuff on cabaret. Now, I play piano. I don't know if you've heard me play uh, underscore piano during this podcast. That is me playing that. I should tell you that. Um, but uh, I, I'm not a strong sight reader by any means. Like I cannot just—I cannot be like an audition pianist because if someone hands me some sheet music, I cannot play it. I need to sit at home with it for a long time. Uh, and kind of play it by... I I play by ear, and I figure it out as I go. Uh, So in order to do this, I said, listen, I'm not going to be... I'm not going to continue the patterns of my uh, 20s where I'm just, I can't do that. I shouldn't do it. I'm going to fake it till I make it here. I'm going to sit at home with the score to Cabaret, and I'm going to learn it, and then I'm going to go pretend that I'm playing it. Spent a lot of time doing that, by the way. Uh, And printed out the score, made endless notes mostly like chord charts Uh, that's what I do I I, I learn a song by ear by the chord progression and then I listen to it and I fill in the little um, little riffs and things in the middle of it Uh, I'm not a real sight reader I'm a fraud but uh, so I did that and it worked fine and also I was very familiar with the score of Cabaret who isn't? it's a a, a big thing however as we all know there there are many versions of Cabaret there's the original and then there's the revival with Alan Cumming and uh, there was a made some changes so I get there having learned the score and then one day they say oh um we're doing actually the original finale not the revival finale because it was the revival score here's the music for that and I was like oh fuck The had sheet music they wanted me to play it right away now luckily for me I look at it and even though I can't sight read very well I know enough to know that the very beginning of it is just uh willkommen for the 700th time with that in the key of G. So I'm like, okay, great. Um, they're doing a stop and start because they're staging the finale. Uh, every time that I stop playing for the director to stage something, I put one AirPod in and I listen to the original cast recording of the finale and I quickly scrawl the chords onto my score. And uh, this worked. Very, uh, very uh, suspenseful, exciting. uh content there, uh, me doing that. Um, I, nobody really uh, finds that story interesting unless they're a piano player. The piano player at <laughs> and my uh, friend who plays piano uh, both thought this was a really fascinating story, and everyone else doesn't give a shit. So uh, uh, let's move on to Chicago. Uh, Gwen Verdon's in it. Yeah, okay, so uh, Fred Ebb writes the lyrics and the book with Bob Fosse. I know that I said a few times on this podcast, my uh, boring uh, oversimplifying theory, that uh, when one person writes the music and one person writes the lyrics, if it's somebody's only job to write the lyrics, those lyrics are usually not very good. I'm gonna say, I think that Fred Ebb is the exception that proves this rule. I think the lyrics in this and in a lot of the Fred Ebb stuff is good. It's not like great, it's not mind blowing, uh, but its he's a good lyricist in the sense that he's invisible he ne- The lyrics never draw attention to themselves They're there and they do a nice job Good job, Fred Ebb And um, really good book scenes Written by him and Fosse um, The book scenes in this are very good and uh, especially in the second act I think the book kind of gets more interesting than the songs in the second act a lot of filler in the second act of Chicago we'll talk about it what makes it cool to experience uh, when you watch Chicago what makes it cooler is if you know how Bob Fosse grew up from the age of 13 he was dancing in vaudeville and burlesque and so he was around burlesque these uh, ladies and the ladies would uh, sexually harass him uh the age of 13. And this erotica he grew up around inspired uh, all of his future work. Now, I want to talk about this because this uh, made me think about some things. And I want to figure out a way to talk about this that is not uh, too cringy and too uh, self-revealing and also um, not uh, too, uh, I don't know. But here's the thing. I feel like The erotica that Bob Fosse grew up in, and then populated his musicals in, I think that that got passed down to me in a way. In my early childhood, actually at the same age, around 13, I spent a lot of time at this theater. Uh, My mom did stuff at this theater, uh, Theater East. No longer there, uh, but it was above the bowling alley and Jerry's Famous Deli in Studio City, here in Los Angeles. And they did these variety shows sometimes that had Fosse numbers. The two that I remember were the Cell Block Tango from this show, Chicago, and Don't Tell Mama from Cabaret. And they dressed in those, you know, in those outfits with the garters and everything, and doing the thing. Um, and uh, I felt a certain kind of way about it as a uh, boy uh, emerging into puberty. And I was kind of the kid in this theater that was—I—I I, I took great pride in like being a gopher during some of these shows. And being like, uh, hey kid, run down to the deli and get me a Dr. Brown's cream soda. Um, That's the kind of thing that I would do there. And just fascinated watching rehearsals of everything. Um, But also there was uh, these ladies who were older ladies, uh, I mean they seemed older to me, Uh, I was 13, but I I think they may have been in their mid to late 30s, early 40s. they were these uh, certain comments made to me, uh, like, uh, oh, oh boy, he's uh, gonna be a, he's gonna break some hearts, and oh, the, the, here's my new boyfriend, this kid, and it was, uh, I, you know, I felt a certain kind of way about it, and also th- they were dressed in these Fosse costumes, and <laughs> there was one moment in particular that I remember, and I know the name of this woman. Uh, uh, I'm not going to say it, because that's weird. But I was backstage, and this woman opened the door to her dressing room and sort of hid behind the door, but I could see uh, very clearly that she was nude. And it may have been the first naked woman that I saw live. And uh, this is burned in my brain. Look, this is weird and vulnerable to be talking about. What I'm saying to you is that... I had the Fosse experience of uh, this specific type of erotica, of uh, the Fosse uh, powerful woman with jazz hands, wearing the garter belts. Uh, It was passed on to me via Bob Fosse, and I don't know how I feel about that. It did did something to my wiring. And um, there's all kinds of articles you can read about that, um, about the psychology of... (laughs) Uh, your sexual wiring. And that's the end of uh, that uh, portion of this podcast. And I'm sorry if I creeped anybody out. Um, There you go. Chicago 1975 got mixed reviews. A lot of people at that point uh, did not like seeing that fourth wall go down. Get over it. You know, we're five years after company, which pissed everybody off because they're like, what's the story? There's no story. I can't deal with this. I mean, they're here there is a story, but they're still doing the Brechtian thing where we're doing a show with dancing and singing, but we're also uh, talking to you as an audience and in the story. So it's just, you know, just get used to it. What's the big deal? It's easy for me to say that now. I was not alive in 1975. It came out the same year as a chorus line, which was such a seismic hit that it overshadowed Chicago on every level, with ticket sales and with Tony Awards. I think that I prefer Chicago to a Chorus Line. I do like a Chorus Line. Um, I was I've seen Chorus Line a bunch of times, and I didn't understand. Like I was like I know this is good. What is it that like I don't like about a Chorus Line? Like there's something about it I don't like. And Sondheim explained this to me in one of these Sondheim books, um, where he said. The problem with the chorus line is that you got all those people standing there in a line and you're going through them one at a time, like telling their stories. And so it's like, it feels like you're not really in the moment because you're counting how much longer the evening is going to be. And that is true. Like, that's really smart. And I would not have thought of it that way, but that really is true. It's like, the fact that they're in a line, a chorus line, (laughs) right there, one at a time, Makes you think, like, oh god, we got this much left. And it really should just be one at a time, baby, one day at a time. Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, so, the Chicago became big uh, when it got revived. Big revival in 1996, directed and choreographed by Anne Ranking. So, now it's time to talk about her, and I may be saying her name wrong. Ranking, ranking. Uh, this is what's weird about it. So, we, as we all know, the first Chicago was uh, precipitated by Fosse's wife, Gwen Verden. Um, by the end of the run of Chicago, <laughs> and ranking uh, replaces Verdon in the show and kind of replaces Gwen Verdon in Fosse's life. Uh, she becomes his girlfriend, uh, he's his men- she's her mentor. But even though he stays married to Verden and never gets divorced from her all the way up till his death in 1987, you know, Ranking is who he's uh, having sex with and who is, uh, you know, his lady. Now um, I should finish that Fosse Verden FX show. Um, So we have the Verden Chicago and then we have the Ranking Chicago in 1996. She uh, does in the style of Bob Fosse. He's now been dead for close to a decade, but she directs it. And uh, weirdly enough, she stars in it also. She's on the revival cast recording. And uh, she's pushing 50 at this point. And I don't want to be ageist or anything, but uh, that's a little strange. Could we agree on that? For somebody uh, that age to play Roxy Hart? I didn't see it in 96. I still had never even been to New York City. But the revival cast recording, my God, I mean, that was huge when I was in high school, specifically when I was in ninth grade, 98 to 99. I, I, maybe it was huge before that, but that's when um, all of the high school theater girls were obsessed with the Chicago Revival album and specifically Bibi Newworth's performance on that Revival cast recording. It is oft imitated. Um, and I wonder if it's like, is this the third wave of feminism here? I feel like it's a positive thing, These women obviously are sexualized, and it was uh, conceived by a heterosexual, uh, womanizing man, but high school girls, when I was in high school, like uh, strutting around singing the cellblock tango and doing the thing with the chair and singing mine hair or whatever and trying to be like B.B. Newworth, I think was an empowering thing. Uh, And I don't want to sit here and explain what third wave feminism is because uh, it's Tiresome and I'm a man and it doesn't matter But uh, I think that that's maybe what that was The revival of Chicago in 1996 uh, Is the longest running show currently on Broadway I should tell you that um, That means uh, it's the second longest overall After Phantom but uh, Phantom just closed Phantom of the Opera Hallelujah. Uh, it's off of Broadway now, so uh, the Chicago revival is on track, on track uh, for to be the longest running show of all time on Broadway. It surpassed Cats in uh, 2014. Fucking Cats! Thank God. Because this show has been running for so long, there have been a lot of noticeable replacements to the lead roles. It's almost like a like a revolving door. There's uh, Some of these names are going to blow your mind. Uh, I want to go through them. So uh, for Roxy, some noticeable replace. And I don't know the years on these. Let's just assume it's at some point in the late 90s, 2000s, or 2010s. Because <laughs> those are the only times it could be. Or the last uh, couple years in the 2020s. Um, so Roxy, uh, Pamela Anderson played Roxy Hart. Melanie, Melanie Griffith. She also uh, took a swing at it. Malora Hardin, Jan from The Office, she played Roxy, that's kind of cool. Mary Lou Henner, the one from Taxi who has got the the condition where she remembers every moment of her life. Gretchen Maul, interesting, I don't know about that. What happened to Gretchen Maul, I feel like I haven't seen her in a while in any films. Uh, Old Cheetah Rivera gave it another shot, Uh, she circled back and did uh, the revival apparently. Cheetah Rivera is fucking immortal, right? Is she still alive? I think she is. I didn't hear about her death. I'm going to assume she's alive. Brooke Shields. She got in there. Is that in the uh, Brooke Shields documentary? I didn't see that. Rumor Willis. She, she got in there. Rita Wilson. I don't like that at all. Tom Hanks' wife, Rita Wilson. Uh, some of the following actors uh, played Billy... Uh, replacements for Billy, Wayne Brady. Is Wayne Brady gonna have to choke a bitch? You know, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, the, uh, the Billy Ray Cyrus. Come on, man. I, I remember hearing about this. That's that's terrible. Tay Diggs played Billy, that sounds pretty good, he has a thankless role in the film, we haven't talked about the film yet, but we certainly will, Cuba Gooding Jr. played Billy Flynn in Chicago, let me tell you a little something about Cuba Gooding Jr., he is now cancelled, but also, uh, I have spoken many times about the Italian restaurant with the singing waiters uh, at which I work. One of the locations, uh, they have the same menu, but one of the locations of this restaurant does not offer prosciutto and melon as an appetizer. It's listed on the menu, but since, uh, because they use the same menu with both, but every time somebody asks for it, you have to say, oh, I'm sorry, we don't have that. The reason is Cuba Gooding Jr. came into that restaurant one day and told the owner that he thought it was bad. He didn't like it. He said, this sucks. And that owner said, take it off the menu. So we do not offer prosciutto and melon because of Cuba Gooding Jr. Also, I saw Cuba Gooding Jr. uh, try to come into the restaurant with his entourage after we were already closed, and they all seemed very drunk. So uh, there you go. Um, I'm gonna, I don't mean to libel Cuba Gooding Jr. I don't even remember what he's canceled for, but apparently he did something not very nice, and uh, whatever. Michael C. Hall, Dexter, he got in there. Uh, I think when I was thinner, people thought I looked like Michael C. Hall. Harry Hamlin. That makes sense, that tracks. Adam Pascal, that makes no sense. Roger from Rent, let's not do that. Jerry Springer, played Billy Flynn in Chicago. Weird, the late Patrick Swayze, I can see it. He dances certainly, we learned that in uh, the what's it called movie, the dirty dancing. And, uh Ben Vereen. There we go. Now we're on the right track. Ben Vereen. Uh, can do no wrong in my book. That sounds like magic. Ben Vereen, by the way, also seemingly immortal. He's still kicking. Notable replacement for Amos. Uh, there's a few on here, but the one that I uh, thought was interesting was uh, Vincent Pastore. You know who he is, right? He's uh, Big Pussy Bumpin' from The Sopranos. A bit of a departure for him. I would see that. Good deal, Matron Mama Morton. Some uh, replacements were uh, Patty LaBelle, Nene Leakes from the fucking reality shows. The uh, I, I've had exactly two relationships in my life where the woman was very into reality shows. Uh, the, the one I'm currently in, and the one I was in uh, in 2010, 2011. And I remember Nene Leakes being in like practically every single one of them. She was like a cross reality show star. So that name uh, popped out to me. B.B. Newworth, she uh, circled back, uh, must have been recently, and played Matron Mama Morton, the one that uh, she originally was, Velma, B.B. Newworth. Aida Tortoro, another alum from The Sopranos, uh, the Janice Soprano. And Strap It Down, here we go. Wendy Williams played Matron Mama Morton in Chicago. What the fuck? So I saw the Broadway uh, revival of Chicago um, in 2017 and by that point it was stale. It felt uh, like an old stale sandwich. And I don't even know why I saw it. You know why I saw it, I I, I, I went to see it because I am cheap. (laughs) Because I was in New York City and there were all these options and that was the cheap option. And I was like, yeah, let me just see this for, uh, you know, 40 bucks or whatever it was. I don't think it was that low, but it was cheaper than all the other shows. And you weren't going to get a ticket to Hamilton in 2017 under any circumstances. There's a, there was a bit of a controversy controversy in, um, let's call it, uh, I don't know what year it was, so I'm not going to call it anything. There's a New York Times article called A Rough Rehearsal, A Suicide, and a Broadway Show in Turmoil. And I don't want to talk about it too much. I remember reading it at the time. Um, Anyway, it's about somebody in the revival of Chicago who had been in it for a while. They were trying to pressure him to quit. Um, He committed suicide. And then it started this conversation that didn't really last very long about backstage bullying. That was around the time that we were uh, having difficult conversations about practically everything. And uh, they yielded very little, these difficult conversations. And uh, I declined to have an opinion about backstage bullying. I think that, uh, okay, I just said I declined to have an opinion, but I'm about to have one. I think that uh, when it comes to artistic people, especially like director types, you do not need to be an asshole to be a good artist. That is a, a, a wrong idea to say you, you need to be m- a mean. To be a good director or a good artist. However, there is a Venn diagram. There's a lot of uh, crossover between mean people and great artists. So you tend to get great artists who are mean. Um, I've worked with people who were pains in the ass. And I've worked with people who are nice. Um, I had a director uh, a couple times in a row uh, who was really showed me the possibilities of how to be... Kind person and also really get what you want as a director and that's what I try to do even though I only direct children's theater but um, Speaking of children's theater like I I, I've worked with a couple of uh, people uh, that you know I worked with this choreographer who was really spicy (laughs) recently Uh, but he was an amazing choreographer and I got the sense that like I would rather have an amazing choreographer that's difficult to work with, than a uh, humdrum choreographer who's super nice. And not maybe not any, everybody feels that way. That kind of departed from the original point. I'm gonna go through Chicago now. It's already, uh, I'm doing a lot of time marking here, but it's 45 minutes in. Um, I watched the, me- the movie of Chicago, came out in 2002. I think it's one of the best movie musicals ever made. I think that it, uh, as far as, I think it transcends the Broadway show, which uh, along with Grease, which we covered last week, I think those are the only two to do that. It's very rare for a movie musical to be better than the film, the stage version. Um, Maybe Fiddler on the Roof does that too, I don't really know because I haven't really seen a very uh, professional stage version of Fiddler on the Roof, but that movie is so good. The movie does things that you can't do on stage, and the whole concept, the way that they have the theatrical uh, interspersed with the filmic, ugh, I hate that word, is that even a word? Filmic? Um, It's so good. And it's directed by Rob Marshall, who also directed Into the Woods, which is a pretty good movie musical, although it does not transcend the stage version, it would be hard to do that. He also did uh, the Annie on TV in the late '90s, which I remember being good. I mean, I don't really like Annie that much, but uh, it was a good did the, the, the as good as you maybe can do with Annie. I have not seen the film version of Nine, and I've not seen the recent film version of The Little Mermaid. I feel like I uh, am trying not to see them because I want to like Rob Marshall, and I get the sense I might not like those movies. Um, <clears throat> When Chicago came out in 2002, it revived the movie musical as a form. It had been long dormant. And I don't think a lot of people realize this. Evita, you know, that happened in 96. But as far as, like, my coming up years, like between the, you know, 1995 and 2002, or just say the 90s, there are not a lot of movie musicals in the 90s. Practically none. And, um... I remember when Moulin Rouge came out in 2000, or maybe 2001, I don't remember. I was excited because everyone was like, it's a movie musical and it's great. I I don't like Moulin Rouge um, at all. I I should give it another chance, but I hated it at the the time. Um, And yeah, I don't know. What I'm trying to say is it's the first good movie musical in a while. And then in the 2000s, there were a lot of movie musicals, and I think it's because of the success of Chicago. What's interesting is because this is my heyday and it's like the the revival of Chicago came out on Broadway when I was like about to start high school. And then the movie came out like right after I'd graduated high school. That's not a very long time, but it felt like a long time in high schooler years. So it's not that that long off from when the revival came out. Um, The opening number, All That Jazz, um, is uh, iconic. And um, in the movie... The way that they intersperse it with uh, Renee Zellweger having sex with uh, the Fred Casely played by Dominic West from The Wire, uh, that's really cool, and that's something you can't do on stage. And it it's uh, it it goes back to the uh, Fosse thing of uh, sex and violence, sex and violence, sex and violence. Uh, The way that he uh, has a Sort of uncomfortable uh, Equating of uh, violence Murder and sex uh, Makes them the same Two sides of the same coin Um, And you get Catherine Zeta-Jones In uh, the film playing Velma I think she's great Uh, I was surprised by how good she was in this And I think it's probably her finest hour Uh, I really like Renee Zellweger too And um, I Again I think maybe it's just because When I was coming up you know, the early two thousands is my heyday. Um, she was all over the place. She was just a, and I, I really, I always really liked her. I thought she was real cute, uh, not just cute. God, asshole. Uh, good, talented. Um, I, the Cold Mountain was like the thing that everybody like gave her awards for. I feel like, and that movie sucked so hard. But everything up until then that she was in, it was, just, it was always good. I, uh, I didn't like uh, the what she's done recently. I didn't like the fucking the Judy Garland thing. Because again, like you can't sing as well as Judy Judy Garland, so why are, are we pretending that it's anywhere near as good? Um and now she seems to just do a lot of uh prosthetic acting <laughs> or whatever, you know. Whatever doesn't matter Doesn't matter All the voices in the Chicago movie They sound like they're trying to be authentic to the music of the time, and that's kind of cool. It's kind of refreshing. You know what I mean? Like, Oh, I'm no one's wife, but Oh, I... And then still adding a modern spin on it, but it's that uh, Al Jolson kind of deal. of, All I care about is love. Like it's from the 20s. One uh, line, or uh, one change, I guess, from the stage to the movie is... uh, so uh, what's her name Roxy Hart kills Fred Casely During all that jazz Like right before the final thing And she does it a lot more callously Like in the movie um, Renee Zellweger He says horrible things to her That makes her uh, cry uh, And says like You're never gonna make it And I just pretended to have connections and, uh, To get a piece of ass And you're nothing And you're pathetic And then she like cries And then gets a gun and kills him In the film in the Sorry in the stage Um She says, nobody walks out on me because he just tries to leave after they have sex. And then she shoots him. And then after she shoots him, she says, I got to pee. So it's a lot more uh, callous, a little more cold-blooded there. Uh, Yeah. And then we all know it happens, certainly. Um, Nobody needs a summary, right, of the plot of Chicago. I mean, I'll give it to you anyway here. Um, Basically, her husband comes home, Amos, who is the biggest cuck in musical theater history. He comes home and he takes the rap for it. He tells the police that he shot this guy as a burglar. But uh, that's all because she shot him and then told him uh, that it was a burglar. But actually, when he finds out while he's being questioned by the police, when he finds out... That uh, it's Fred Casely. She's like, well, that's the guy that sold us our furniture. He's not a burglar. Oh, she's well, screwing him up. She, they, they, she's the one that killed him. And gives him up. All during a song called uh, My Funny Honey, which is a great song. And a great uh, theatrical device. And a great cinematic device, uh, the way that they do it. It works great in both cases, is what I'm trying to say to you here, guys. John C. Riley, uh, to me, in 2002, John C. Riley was a god. This is kind of before he was a household name. Um, he won an Oscar for this, I think, didn't he? Best Supporting Actor. Well-deserved. Very good in this. Um, but he kind of has two careers. This is before the Will Ferrell, Adam McKay, uh, John C. Reilly uh, from, uh, Step, with Step Brothers and the Talladega Knights and all that. When he was not really considered a comic actor yet, he was... Um, I first became aware of him... In Magnolia, which uh, is still, I think, uh, I'm comfortable saying it's my favorite movie of all time And that's specific to just when I saw it and the fact that I grew up in the San Fernando Valley uh, and But just still to me, I mean, I could, I never get bored watching Magnolia And I think he is one of the best parts of it Him playing Officer Jim uh, in Magnolia uh, Just really great, really great uh, that, that character feels so real t- to me of a, a cop in the valley uh, that, that uh, has those specific uh, vulnerabilities and thoughts, and just his love story uh, with Melora Walters. Walters? Walters? Melora. Um, I, it, it moves me to no end. But like I said, the 2000s are my heyday, and that came out at just the right time for me. Matron Mama Morton in this in the movie they flip the songs. Uh, they uh, "Cell Block Tango" does not happen until after uh, "When You're Good to Mama, Mama's Good to You." Um, a lot of uh, yeah, th- this is a, a song that a lot of big girls like to sing, and God bless them, you know. It's it's very empowering, I think, for the, the, the for the big lady. <laughs> Asshole idiot. A lot of sexual puns in this. Um, one of the lines in this, I feel like, it's really good. Uh, compliments to Fred Ebb, as the um, they say that life is tit for tat, and that's the way I live. So I deserve a lot of tat for what I got to give. I like that line. It's good. Good time. Cell Block Tango is maybe the best song in the show. It's where they you got the six stories. Is it six? Pop six, squish. Uh-uh. Cicero Lipschitz. Yeah, six. Um, and like I said, I saw this before I saw the show. I saw this in a variety show uh, at uh, Theater East as a, a prepubescent, and I was uh, both impressed by uh, the stories in the song and uh, the talent of the ladies and the sexual uh, prowess of the women. Prowess, you know what I'm saying? Um, I love how in the film version they don't show the murders because that uh, it would be so easy to do that. Like the cell block tango as it's filmed, they're only concerned with um, the interpretive dance of the murder, using red scarves to indicate blood, and like uh, the, the, the cut, cutting to um, the the prisoner, the female prisoners like telling the story of how they murdered their husbands. I thought that was cool. I like that. Um, I cannot be the only one that wonders this, and I'm sure there's an answer to this. I just don't understand it, and I'm going to be vulnerable enough to admit that I don't understand this. Why is Velma second to last? Velma has already been established as the uh, center of this, sort of, or the narrator, or like the star. And it's weird that uh, Cicero is before Lipschitz, because like Lipschitz is kind of a shrug after all of these stories. I, the best one is I Maybe the Ran into my knife Ten times uh, What's that uh, about Squish, squish? <laughs> That's what that is that's, that's the best one That should be the topper I guess But the story about um, Ruth, Gladys, Rosemary And Irving And uh, he's uh, himself is alive And I saw him dead It's like that punchline Is maybe the weakest Of all the punchlines And so Why is it last? Please explain this to me I don't get it. Why can't it be Pops, Six, Squish, Uh-uh, Lipschitz, Cicero? <laughs> feels so unnatural. Maybe because I'm used to the original one. In the movie, they, have, uh, they borrow uh, the Jailhouse Rock uh, background. A little, a little bit of a nod to Jailhouse Rock there. Where you have silhouettes of um, people behind bars. Uh, and Many stories of people behind bars. The character of Mary Sunshine has changed a lot over the years. In the original, 1975, uh, it was played by a woman in the revival. It is played by a man. But they do a little trick um, where they, like, for instance, if I am playing Mary Sunshine, I will be listed in the program as C. Kerrigan. And it's such a it's supposed to be such a convincing portrayal of a woman by a man with, like, a credible, legit soprano voice... That, uh, spoiler alert, in the second act uh, Part of Billy Flynn's, I think his closing arguments Is to reveal uh, to uh, Strip off the clothes of Mary Sunshine And reveal that it's a man To be like, things aren't always as they seem They abandon that in the film uh, Christine Baranski plays uh, Mary Sunshine, and they don't have that whole element to it, and it makes sense why you wouldn't do that nowadays, because it's uh, we have uh, ever-evolving concepts of, uh, you know, <laughs> uh, trans versus drag versus uh, uh, whatever, representation. Uh, so yeah, that's Mary Sunshine is different. Uh, Richard Gere is really great in the movie. I don't even like Richard Gere necessarily uh, overall. But he's very good. He reminds me of this professor uh, that I have right now, uh, just in his whole vibe, uh, That uh, this professor that I talked about last week that I'm having uh, one-sided conversations with in my car about just war theory. Just uh, the sort of uh, uh, the, the, the the cocksure vibe. <laughs> Richard Gere does a great job. The first lyric that uh, bothers me, that I noticed, that is like, oh, that's is that, uh, comprehensible, comprehensible, not a bit reprehensible, it's so defensible. Now that makes coherent sense, and that's, uh, by the way, that's during the, But we both reach for the gun song, another great song, another great uh, storytelling device where Roxy is a dummy on his lap, and I sang that uh, long note for you at the beginning of the episode here and you're welcome for that. Uh, it's just, yeah, defensible I don't think anyone would actually say that It, it it's it makes sense, because uh, you're a defense lawyer It's so defensible It's just, uh, it's it's a sweaty rhyme It's trying to, comprehensible, not a bit reprehensible It's so defensible And they do it twice It's just, uh, I don't like it <clears throat> uh, The song Roxy uh, The monologue before that is great uh, Kind of even upstages the song a bit it's Just the jokes in there uh, With the ba dum like the uh, what the whole thing about I love you, honey, I love you. When he twists or boobs. Uh, and then um, I started, uh, what was it? I started fooling around. And then I started screwing around, which is fooling around without dinner. That's a good line. Good book writing overall. Um, there's a lot of filler, like I said, in the show. They cut a lot of songs from the movie, and uh, rightly so. Like the me and my baby, my baby and me, yeah, da, 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 da. It wasn't until I saw it on Broadway in 2017 um, that I remembered that these songs existed. Like uh, when Velma takes the stand, like ugh, you don't need it. And I know a girl. They're very forgettable songs. A lot of forgettable songs in this show. Um. I haven't told you yet if I need you to like this. I'm okay with I mean, yeah, I need you to like Chicago. I need you to like the movie of Chicago. Let's put it that way. I don't need you to go see it on Broadway right now. Um, Mr. Cellophane was one of my favorites just because I always, uh, when you're growing up you're, and you're a musical theater kid, you like to imagine yourself in these shows. And I thought that I wanted to play uh, Amos. Um, I think that uh, I had an idea of myself as more diminutive than I thought I was Um and i a couple of acting teachers told me this in high school because i always chose material like for monologues and scenes like i was these these little guys that are huh and they're like you know you've got you're a huge presence on stage uh, this is the wrong material for you uh and then i didn't get a lot of parts that like mr snow uh because uh this episode is just all about me at this point um but Mr. Cellophane, uh, the cuck anthem uh, for the ages. One thing it's interesting to think about is that this is based on Bert Williams. Uh, and a lot of the characters in the performance style are based on old vaudeville performers. My mother wrote and directed a play in the late 90s called My Lady Vaudeville that uh, was performed at this theater that I told you about, uh, Theater East. And Bert Williams was a character in this play. It was about the vaudeville performers at the turn of the century trying to unionize. Bert Williams was a black man who performed in blackface, although he was already a black man, um, that he was the first to do this. And the song that he sang in my mother's show uh, is very similar to Mr. Cellophane. This song is called uh, Nobody, and it's an original Bert Williams song. And it's got a million verses. Uh, when life seems full of clouds and rain, and I am filled with naught but pain, who soothes my thumping, bumpin' brain? Nobody. Uh, it's a song of self-pity. Uh, like, Mr. Cellophane, Mr. Cellophane, shoulda been my name, Mr. Cellophane, cause you can look right through me, walk right by me, and never know I'm there. And the uh, way that John C. Riley performs it in the movie, it's uh, very Burt Williams-esque. It's the clown thing. Uh, and he's modeling that after after Burt Williams, and he says as much in a uh, mini documentary featurette that I saw on YouTube uh, with Ricky Jay, because uh, the magician who uh, worked many times with uh, John C. Riley on those Paul Thomas Anderson films uh, like the aforementioned Magnolia and Boogie Nights. Uh, they were talking about Burt Williams, and John C. Riley says that when he was in Chicago, he uh, used Burt Williams, uh, and modeled the thing after Burt Williams. Now um, there's a character in Chicago, um, and I don't remember her name, but she's the one that says "Uh-uh." She's the uh, the immigrant, uh, the uh, Hungarian immigrant. There's the the crossover <laughs> with. Um, she loves me. However, she is based on a character that is not Hungarian; is Italian. The first woman to be hanged for murder in Chicago, 1923. Uh, An Italian immigrant named Sabella Nitti, uh, who allegedly, but maybe did not, uh, murder her husband, Francesco Nitti. And uh, this is an interesting story. There's a book about it that I have not read, but it'd be interesting to read. Uh, It's called Ugly Prey, and um, it's a crazy story. So um, she was apparently very hard-looking. She was rural, and uh, it was maybe why she was sentenced to death, to hang, and these Roxy Hart, Belma... Kelly types were not, and it was the whole. Her 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 lawyer had a mental illness uh, that made him kind of an incompetent counsel, and that uh, anyway, somebody tried to reopen this case uh, later, but uh, she was hanged. And in Chicago, it's a Hungarian immigrant that gets hanged. Um, I don't like the song Razzle Dazzle I know it's one of the big songs from the show And I get the point of it That if you're a lawyer You gotta razzle dazzle him I just find the song uh, to be a little bit dull uh, And I don't understand why he says They'll never know You're just a bagel <laughs> Give him a fake and a finagle They'll never know you're just a bagel What do you mean you're just a bagel? I don't understand like uh, fun little story about this uh candor and Ebb when they wrote this song razzle Dazzle uh Fosse didn't like it at first which was good instinct and then um, Fred Ebb said to candor he said add a little double snap and that'll make him like it uh, with the <laughs> that's an example of a double snap everybody uh I don't know why I felt compelled to do it for you when does that happen give him the old razzle dazzle Uh, I don't know when the fucking double snap happens But there's a double snap Also Fosse's original concept for this was uh, And he liked it when they put a double snap in it Uh, He wanted this song to be an orgy On the courthouse steps Because of course he did Because he's Bob Fosse Jerry Orbach playing Billy uh, Talked him out of it He said uh, you're missing quote The Brechtian subtlety intrinsic in the number (laughs) But uh, he conceded to that I wish there was more trial in the show. I'm going to tell you that. And uh, I mentioned this in the parade episode. I think the idea of doing a trial in a musical um, is uh, underutilized. There should be more trials in musicals. Let's do more trials, everybody. One of the songs, uh, Class, uh, is cut from the movie. Everyone now is a pain in the ass Whatever happened to class And it's a like a lot of the songs in the show It's a bit of a one joke song It's Matron Mommy, Mama Morton, and Velma Kelly Are listening to the radio And they're uh, bemoaning the loss of class And they're saying some very vulgar things while they say it One line that was cut Was uh, Every guy is a s- uh, Every guy is a snot Every girl is a twat and interestingly enough, Fosse said, this is too dirty. So that's a bit of a reversal there. You wouldn't expect that. Fosse said, no, that's filth. Take that, out, Get that out of here. That is pretty over the top for a musical. Every guy is a snot. Every girl is a twat. I feel dirty saying it. That's a violent word. <laughs> twat. Once the C word gets uh, uh, exhausted and it's no longer uh, such a hot uh, uh, um, forbidden curse word, we should revisit twat. I'm going to stop saying twat, everybody. Uh, That's the last time I said it. Let me tell you something about Chicago. It's a good show overall, but it has a very unsatisfying ending. I don't know about this closing number, this nowadays. And okay, that's another thing that bonds the two shows this week. They both have unsatisfying endings. It's an okay song. And it does make you think a little bit about the time it's in. It just doesn't really wrap it. It feels unsatisfying in a way that I can't quite describe. I think also um, the problem with, this is a revelation I'm having in the moment. It is not in my notes. The problem with uh, really f- uh, being on board with Roxy and Velma, I mean both of them, but especially Roxy as these antiheroes who have killed, but you're on their side, the whole antihero thing, is uh, I think that's complicated by the presence of Amos because that last scene that Roxy has with Amos is so fucking sad that uh, I don't necessarily, maybe it's because I'm a chauvinist that can't appreciate a female antihero, but I don't feel very Yas Queen when she sings nowadays because poor fucking Amos. <laughs> he thought he was going to have a baby and then he lied to him and said there was no baby and you cheated on him. He took all his money. Um, so that's uh, what bothers me about the end of Chicago. So there you go, everybody. That's uh, Chicago. I hope you enjoyed uh, my analysis of Chicago. Do I have any final thoughts on Chicago? Uh, I think I may need you to like Chicago. I may- I need you to at least appreciate Chicago. I need Chicago to close on Broadway. We all do. Um, well, let's let it hit the record. Let's let it surpass Phantom of the Opera. That'd be good, right? I don't want to give Phantom of the Opera the satisfaction of being the longest-running show on Broadway history. Um, I've only seen Act 1 of Phantom of the Opera, but I was in uh, the Phantom of the Palisades at Theater Palisades Kids. Uh, Somebody uh, got up on their hind legs and wrote a parody, which is why the lyrics to Phantom of the Opera songs, uh, to me, always sound unnatural. I always want to hear, the Phantom of the Palisades is there. And decathlon instead of masquerade. That's how those things are in my head, because I learned those before I learned the uh, original. This is a very unfocused episode. Um, This is a far cry from the Adderall days. Let's uh, switch gears here, guys. Let's talk about She Loves Me. Okay, so the first thing that you need to know about She Loves Me is that it was written by Bach and Harnick. That is Jerry Bach and Sheldon Harnick. They wrote it one year before their mega hit, Fiddler on the Roof. So, um, it was not a big success in 1963. It became a, a cult classic. That's what Wikipedia calls it. I find it would be weird to meet the She Loves Me cult. I don't know what their problem is. A uh, very successful revival. So anyway, um... Yeah, one year before Fiddler on the Roof. Let me tell you about Sheldon Harnick, though. The lyricist for She Loves Me and Fiddler on the Roof. This man was born in 1924 and he died four months ago. Who's good at math? That's 99 years old. That that, that guy was eating his carrots, that's for sure. And uh, so yeah, he wrote the lyrics. Uh, He was good friends, lifelong friends with um, Stephen Sondheim. And they hung out and uh, gave each other notes on their work And yeah, Jerry Bach wrote the music The music uh, and lyrics in this show are very good, I'll say I, uh, I'm i not 100% sure I need you to like this one either though um, I don't know This whole episode doesn't really fit the model of my show Because it, the, 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 these shows are fine <laughs> They're okay But I never in a million years would uh, try to tell a non-musical theater person to like musicals via Chicago and She Loves Me. Um, everybody involved in the writing of She Loves Me served in the army because, of course, they did. Because it was that uh, time in the 20th century where you had to serve in the army or else you were yellow. So, uh, but yeah, you know, but what does that really mean? Like, in some cases, uh, these guys are serving in the army by uh, writing little ditties. <laughs> Um, writing little army songs and singing, uh, uh, conducting the army choir. Do you have to go through basic training to do uh, Yeah I guess you, you probably do. Um, it was based, so She, she Loves Me is based on an old Hungarian play called Parfumery by Miklos Laszlo. This play, Parfumery, has many adaptations. Forever. Uh, endlessly adapted. Uh, Not only into this musical uh, um, What is it? She Loves Me That we're talking about Uh, It was adapted into the film Little Shop on the Corner With uh, Jimmy Stewart You want to buy some perfume? That's a terrible impression Uh, In the good old summertime With uh, the aforementioned Judy Garland I saw that That Can I tell you something? I've seen every adaptation of this play I've seen every single one I am a completionist of Parfumery by Miklos Laszlo, except I've never seen Parfumery by Miklos Laszlo. Just the uh, adaptations. A far more recent adaptation is the horrible movie, You've Got Mail, starring Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan. Um, what a piece of shit that is. What a uh, swing and a miss. Uh, I mean, first of all, I think we can agree that that aged horribly. The idea of, um, you know, you've got mail being uh, important in anyone's life. Uh, That lasted for exactly two years. And then we all uh, got got our Gmail accounts. Um... They're relying so heavily on the likability of Meg Ryan and Tom Hanks in this, and uh, it's not that those two are not likable, obviously they are. They're trying to strike gold a second time, uh, the way that they did with Sleepless in Seattle, but uh, repellent, Uh, very bad, Uh, not funny, Uh, I think it's just a bad script. Also Tom Hanks is supposed to be kind of a a shitty, greedy corporate guy, and the rule of Tom Hanks is that he can only play the, the hero of the century that has nothing but good qualities. Otherwise, nobody buys it. You have to... Tom Hanks can only be a fucking good guy. Or else your movie makes no money. That's how that works. It's tiresome. And also, the weirdest um, underutilization of Dave Chappelle in film history. Dave Chappelle. Poor Dave Chappelle. (laughs) Uh, I think that this is after Half-Baked, certainly. This is 1998. um, But it's before Chappelle's show. He is... Tom Hanks is what is so clearly a token black friend, just with no friend chemistry whatsoever. Uh, his only job is to tell the audience that Tom Hanks has a black friend. It's so weird. And he doesn't say anything remotely funny. They don't give him anything remotely funny to say. And the the whole movie is a fucking zero. Uh, not worth a rewatch, everybody. You've got mail. No good. Um. This play, the story—I mean, the reason it's adapted so many times is because it's uh, a—I don't know—I don't want to say compelling story, but it's like it's an—it's an obvious. uh, So, uh, two people are pen pals, and little do they know the person that they are falling in love with via being a pen pal is a person in their life that they work with, that they Uh, hate—a man and a woman who really don't like each other in real life are, uh, they have a secret pen pal they're falling in love with and it turns out it's that person. And then one of them finds out it's them, but doesn't say it right away and hilarity ensues. And then the other one, and then at the end, they're like, oh, it is you. And then they kiss each other. Happens all the time. (laughs) Um, I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's it's become a common story because this has been adapted so many times. It's ripe for a new adaptation, but God, please don't do it. I understand that there is such a thing as hinge now, and uh, you could make it so the, the, they don't look like their picture and you don't realize it's the same people, but please don't. Enough! ENOUGH! In She Loves Me, It's they, they, uh, they meet through a lonely hearts club. That's how they start becoming pen pals. I guess that was a thing. A lonely hearts club. Lucky for us uh, nowadays, especially those of us uh, who in the past couple decades uh, really availed themselves of online dating and may or may not have become addicted to it, Um, it, there's less of a stigma to uh, doing something like that and that you don't need to uh, have a meet cute in a coffee shop anymore to have a legitimate romance. I mean, I think a lot of people nowadays are comfortable telling you they met on OkCupid, Hinge, Tinder, etc. Uh, but let's not readapt the story. We have too many. Um, she Loves Me can be a bit milk toast. It's just kind of pleasant, right? Uh, th- this revival in 2016, there is a filmed version of it, which I watched in advance of this podcast. There's a big change in tone, I think, in this revival. Uh, and it starts to feel like a 2000s romantic comedy. It starts to feel like the movie Serendipity, Or sex and the city. And um, I wonder if I'm going to sound like a sexist here. I've said that a bunch of times in this episode. This is the sexist episode, everybody. This is the episode that gets me canceled. So uh, be sure to download it and save it in an external hard drive in case I delete all of this to become president of the United States if you want to destroy me. Um, I'm a person who likes romantic comedies. Uh, I always have from early on. Uh, probably because of my uh, the fact that I, pro- I belong in Sex and Love Addicts Anonymous. Or at least Love Addicts Anonymous. I'm into that kind of thing. Um, there are certain romantic comedies, though, that really bother me. And uh, to me, in 2008, when the Sex and the City movie came out... I had seen, like, reruns of Sex in the City on, um, I don't know if they were on TBS yet. But anyway, I'd I'd seen the show a few times, and, like, I didn't hate it. I did sort of say, Okay, this really isn't for me, but it's fine. I saw the movie Sex in the City because it was 2008, and I was in my early 20s, and I just, like, saw every movie. To me, it's the worst film ever made. Uh, I think still. And I think it made me dislike women for a while. Uh, and uh, I, I, I don't say that uh, lightly. <laughs> I mean, and I don't dislike women. Uh, I dislike uh, Sex and the City, the movie, uh, very much. I did not see the sequel. Everyone said the sequel was worse. But um, there's a thing... Here's the deal. I understand that there, since time immemorial, as far back as uh, the Epic of Gilgamesh, uh, the male gaze has created... Uh, Very two-dimensional female characters And that is a very bad thing However, I learned in kindergarten That two wrongs don't make a right And um, I don't think that the idea Of the female gaze uh, Of a male character in a romantic comedy Is like a huge problem that needs to be addressed It's just when I see it, it bothers me When I see um, what a man is supposed to be uh, What the female ideal of a man is In a a, a, a female-driven romantic comedy I get angry, um, maybe just because I'm not that man. And, uh, but it, the, the man, the, the Dermot Mulroney's of the world from romantic comedies, uh, you, you, you have to be a guy that uh, has a crisp blue Oxford shirt and a good credit score. And, but then he likes to cut loose in the man cave and talk about uh, the godfather in football. I find this I find this troublesome, <laughs> but like I said, it's not that bad when you stack it up against what women go through, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Qualification, qualification, damage control, damage control. Um, but you know, just because something isn't as bad as its uh, opposite doesn't mean it isn't bad. And to me, I feel like it's bad. I don't like the revival of She Loves Me, 2016, and I'm watching it and I'm wondering, this is the second time I watched it, I saw it a few years ago when I first got my Broadway HD account, and I'm wondering, like, what's missing here? I ask myself. I know I like She Loves Me, I saw it uh, early on and I enjoyed it, I don't like love it, but I was like, this is fun, but why don't I like this, why don't I like this revival? I read a New York Times review of it by Ben Brantley, and what's interesting is this is a positive review. But it kind of explains to me, in this positive review, what I don't like about it. He calls it, quote, a sustained reminder of the pleasures of exalted ordinariness. He calls it, quote, the great vanilla ice cream musical. He calls it, quote, old fashioned and unpretentious. And yeah, I guess that's what I don't like about it. It's very ordinary. And it's not, it uh, it is old fashioned. I feel like it's sexist I feel like it's trying to Put a modern spin on these female characters To make them less arch and fexus Oh god, sexist (sighs) Nexus Lexus But it fails, I think it fails So um, I mean, so she She Loves Me is not that deep It's not trying to be that deep It's not about anything it did make me think about the service industry because it's a lot about the service industry and people who work in the service industry and I currently work in the service industry and I feel a certain kind of way about that. Uh, I don't like working in the service industry <laughs> um, I, and I, it's not, I haven't like my whole life. I started out, uh, one of my first like uh, real job that wasn't like a camp counselor type job was at Jamba Juice back when I was an a, a alcoholic and a drug addict. And then I uh, was a uh, bust tables in New York City, and then I was a food runner in uh, Los Angeles, and then I uh, Luisa's trattoria, which went shut out of business. I uh, like to think I was a small piece of that for being so bad at that job. Uh, I, that, but more recently, I, uh, after I worked in uh, an office job and in arts enrichment for kids for well over a decade, I recreated myself as a singing waiter. And so I'm in the service industry now, and. Um, I can't think of anything worse than working in this perfumery. Like watching these guys. I would so hate this. The fact that they um, have to be so uh, crisp and well-kempt and friendly. <laughs> because the restaurant that I work at, okay, so it's been around for uh, since the late 40s. And it's one of those restaurants where they kind of don't give a shit anymore about customer service uh, or being nice to people that come in or advertising. They're just like, we're here. Everyone knows we're here. Come on in. And so I do the absolute bare minimum as a waiter. Now, there are days when I'm in a good mood and I'll give someone real good service and I'll be very charming and very friendly, but that's not always. And that's the reason why I think that I probably would not be good as a stand-up comic is because uh, if I'm not in the mood to be charming or to be on, I'm just not. Um, and I, it's not that I'm rude, but I will just sort of be like, okay. And I also don't really care if I have stains on my shirt. Or if my hair is in my face. And if I worked in this perfumery, I feel like I would have to care about those things. So I don't want to work in this perfumery. And I feel hostile towards uh, the people I am meant to have customer service towards. The customer. I don't like customers. And people that are customers in a perfumery, I feel like would be uh, customers I would really not like Uh, because I am a chauvinist, which is what we learned from this episode. No, um, not just because they're women. I wouldn't like the guys buying perfume for their wives either. I don't want to talk about perfume or be nice to anyone. But maybe people do, maybe the people in this show do. Uh, First time that I saw She Loves Me was at the Actors Co-op Theater in the 90s in Los Angeles. The Actors Co-op Theater is great. Uh, At least it was back then. I haven't seen anything there in a while. I can only assume it's still great. They uh, declined to uh, cast me in Next to Normal, but I did go to the callback, uh, however many years ago that was. Uh, But that's where I saw the first time That was the first time I saw Into the Woods Which was a life-changing experience for me And a lot of stuff there Uh, Guys and dolls Like seeing that on stage for the first time was a big deal That's another one where the the, uh, uh, Sexual awakening may or may not have happened Um, The thing about She Loves Me And I think it depends on how you do it on stage The one that I saw at the Actress Co-op There, it's all fun and games and pretty sunny, happy story. And then towards the end of the first act, there's a moment in the show that scared the shit out of me. Way too intense for the rest of the uh, the tone of the rest of the show. We'll talk about it when we get to it. Um, but the universality of the story, or the fact that it's adapted so many times, uh, pen pals falling in love with a pen pal, um. I had, a, say, an experience in college. Uh, first time I tried to go to college at UCLA, similar <laughs> to this. Um, actually, probably more similar to uh, the Catfish documentary. But um, I, and it wasn't that similar to either one. But I've, I'll be very vulnerable with you guys one more time here. This is I'm really putting it all out on the line. I need someone to show me how to scrub things from the internet eventually. But uh, so when I first started at UCLA, I was living in the dorms and the minute that I got there, I didn't want to be there. Like the minute I started college, I felt alienated. I felt inferior. And it was at the exact moment that I started to want to be drunk or stoned all the time. Uh, but in not in a, a, a hell yeah party, woo woo woo, I'm on a boat kind of way, in a, all by myself in a room, uh, watching a TV kind of way, and uh, so I was in the dorm with uh, a roommate who hated me, who was a biology major. Uh, I'll call him out, Nicholas Ching. Hey, Nicholas Ching, fuck you. Uh, he wasn't very nice, but I wasn't very nice as a roommate. Um, he, he complained about me to the I, uh, to the RA, not to the IRA. That'd be a lot scarier. He complained to me to the, about me to the RA because the room smelled like pot one night. Um, and at that point on, we uh we, we were not cool anymore, but um, so uh, I spent all of my time in this room when I wasn't in class or cutting class, and I had my first laptop that I ever had, and I was using AIM, the AOL Instant Messenger, uh, and uh, you know, maybe seven years too late, uh, in 2002, I spent some time in chat rooms, <laughs> and uh. Started to uh, strike up a uh, chat, chatty chat romance with somebody. Ugh, and uh, because you know, like I said, I was not uh, meeting my uh, classmates, and I was isolated, and I was uh, stoned a lot of the time. And so, uh, and it got to the point where we were saying, "Yeah, I love you, baby." <laughs> and then I like discovered at one point um, through uh, internet sleuthing that this person wasn't. Uh, who she said she was with the picture on her account anyway it's all very pathetic uh, but it, uh, that this is the closest I've come to a she loves me catfish situation there was no reason to tell you that story uh, but uh, let's get into the show the opening number is called good morning good day and it signals to you that we're in for something very wholesome. If you go with the Hammerstein Sondheim model of opening numbers, this opening number sets the tone of, uh, listen, this is not going to be long day, long day's journey into night. We're going to uh, have some catchy melodies where we all say good morning to each other. And uh, the middle section where they decide that they might go have a picnic. And then one of them says, we can't do that. We'll all be out of a job. And then they say, a picnic. Oh, well, altogether. I hate, I don't care for that. That's, uh, though, it's very cloying, and I don't like it for one second. Once they get inside the perfumery, and by the way, if you don't know, it's a bunch of people working in a perfumery uh, Marichek's perfumery. The weird thing, too, is uh, it's everybody's, it's a very American uh, post World War II vibe story with the character. Tropes and everything But all of the names are still uh, Very European The Amalia Balish and Mr. Marichek And Kodai and Sipos, like they all still have those names But they're saying, hey, what are you doing there Sipos Uh, I wonder why they did that I wonder why they didn't change the names to uh, American Names It's distracting If you ask me Uh, Sounds while selling is a very catchy melody uh, I would like to see a and the whole device of that song is that it's just little fragments with different people saying things but then when you hear the fragments together it makes uh, uh, funny sentences like I would like to see a face like yours smashed it's like no one's actually saying that but it's like three people there. I, I don't like that either This is getting off to a rough start. I do like, I have a fondness for She Loves Me. It's just not coming across right now. Maybe I'm in a bad mood. Um, I would also, so uh, Amalia Balish comes in and asks for a job. And everybody acts like that's the most horrible news ever. Like, no, get out of here. We can't give you a job. Uh, Rather than just saying, we're not hiring you right now. Thank you very much. We'll keep your application. They turn this into a big uh, hairy deal. And so she tries to show, look what a good salesperson I am. Uh, there's a musical cigarette box. She says it's a candy box to this customer and then it opens up and it, it plays music and she sings a song called No More Candy and says this is a musical candy box. I would hate this, a musical candy box. I'll tell you that. Um, I, I'm somebody with an overeating problem not uh, in the not because of candy, really because of the savories, because of uh, uh, London broil and things of this nature and hamburgers. So I don't have a... But it, like for instance, if there was a... Hamburger box. What? I, if there was a box with a song that reminded me not to eat the thing inside of it, th- that would be bad. I would end up just hating that song. All right. I would not. It, it's just like if you, if you should never have a loved one tell you, oh, don't let me eat this fucking uh, hot dog because then you're just going to hate that person because you want to eat that hot dog. Or uh, it's the same reason why you shouldn't put a song that you like as your alarm in the morning. Because then you're going to hate that song. So um, any song that is on a box with candy in it uh, is doomed to fail. Especially if it's supposed to tell you not to eat the candy. It's a small point, but an important one. The customer that she's trying to sell this musical candy box to, traditionally, is played by a fat actress. Um, And... My sister and I, my little sister and I, when we saw this show, uh, and this comes up a lot. I think I've mentioned this before. Uh, if you have an actor in a show where they say on stage that they're fat and they're played by somebody who is fat, does that, is, uh, that's very weird. And it doesn't happen so much anymore. And they kind of work around that a lot. And I don't know. I don't know how I feel about it. I feel like it's... Uh, kind of easy and not funny to make fun of someone for being fat. But there is such a thing as a person being fat and you could acknowledge the fatness of a person. I was in Avenue Q in 2012 playing Brian and the uh, my ex who I dated for I ended up dating for uh, over a decade and co co-parenting her son with her. I guess exactly a decade, not over a decade. Um, she, I, I did not invite her to see Avenue Q cause we were early dating. And the reason I didn't is because <laughs> the character of Brian that I was playing gets called like a fat piece of shit. Hey, fat, lazy idiot, like over and over again. And I had this, like, uh, if she, should, what if she sees the show and she's like, huh, I guess he kind of is fat. I was trying to uh, fly under the radar and be like, I'm not fat. And, uh, if you've never seen me in person, uh, which, why would you? This is a podcast unless you know me personally and you're listening to this in which case hello um, you know I, I'm a I'm I, I think I can say without uh, sounding like I'm in denial or being arrogant like I'm a big person uh, but I'm not like a round <laughs> that person I'm six foot five uh, I'm and and very large uh, overall uh, that's the uh, good PR for how I look <laughs> but so uh, you know, it's the fatness of me is open to interpretation, <laughs> which is why you don't want someone you're dating to come see you in Avenue Q. But yeah, so uh, there, it's it's they don't out and out call this woman fat in She Loves Me, but they say um, some of us have trouble uh, moderating our sweets, and then the fat woman is supposed to look at her angrily, like, oh, don't, don't we all? Um, and then I know in the revival of Into the Woods, an example of like how they don't do stuff like this anymore is. Um, Instead of saying, and Jack had no father, and his mother, well, she was not quite beautiful. Like, they cut that line. They said, and his mother, well. um, So, yeah, I guess, you know, there's no such thing as fat and there's no such thing as ugly, for better or for worse. But, uh, I don't know. I find that I uh, have no opinions about things today. Uh, Oh, you know what I really don't have an opinion about? Uh, Zachary Levi and uh, his controversies. He plays the lead role in this revival, Zachary Levi, Levy, Levy, Levi. You know Zachary Levy, Levi. He was uh, Chuck in the TV show Chuck. I've never seen one episode of Chuck, but I remember uh, people were staging protests to not have Chuck get canceled. It had some weird niche following. Also, more recently, Shazam, and then the Shazam sequel. So I don't care. So um, I don't like him in this. Um, And uh, here's another thing to cancel me for. I guess he's heterosexual, but he doesn't really read as heterosexual in this. The character is heterosexual. Uh, There is a thing in musical theater that happens one time where there's a romantic couple that doesn't feel credible because the actor playing the heterosexual male lead seems gay, and it seems more like a... Fruit fly situation with no sexual tension, which is the case here. Even though Zachary Levi's not gay, now I, I a lot of gay men work in musical theater, and that's great, and that's fine, and it's it's okay. It's just like the you don't need to be gay to be in a musical, but it's also hard to deny that a lot of gay people like musicals and are into musicals. So I don't know what's going on here necessarily. I there is no uh, sexual or romantic chemistry between Zachary Levi and. Um, I have her name somewhere here, <laughs> Laura, uh, Italian last name, uh, who is actually uh, pretty good in this. Benanti, Laura Benanti, as Amalia Balish. Um, apparently, so I I, I I was reading up about Zachary Levi because I got him confused with Zachary Quinto for a minute, whom I just saw on stage last year in Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf with Callista Flockhart, very strange. And uh, I noticed that people are mad at Zachary Levi uh, uh, because he was a transphobe and an anti-vaxxer. And I was like, okay, interesting. Let's uh, find out more about this because I'm uh, as empty-headed as anyone else that likes uh, tabloidy celebrity news. Now, the evidence for him being a transphobe, uh, if I may, is very thin. (laughs) Um, The reason that they think he's a transphobe is because he went on Joe Rogan. And at some point, he complimented uh, the idiotic transphobe, Jordan Peterson. I I think that I shouldn't have to call you by your new name. Uh, So that's why they think he's a transphobe. Whatever, dude. Uh, And then they think he's an anti-vaxxer because he criticized Pfizer. (laughs) Like... uh, I think that maybe that was a a sign of the times. I think now if somebody famous said, hey, maybe Pfizer is not a good company, they wouldn't call you an anti-vaxxer for that reason, because we didn't all think that we had to love Pfizer to get a vaccine to save the world. Uh, So that's weird. Uh, And it was one of those articles, by the way. um, And I think that if, uh, you know, the new version of Dante's Inferno should have a circle in hell for the sort of uh, quote-unquote journalists who write articles that are all about Twitter reactions to things. It was one of those articles where like, oh, here's what people said on Twitter about this. And it's all people saying, I was excited to see Shazam 2, and now I'm not. (laughs) Do you need the lead actor of a movie you're excited to be to to like... uh, like vaccines and uh, Not be a transphobe to enjoy that movie I don't understand the logic there I don't understand man I don't know are we supposed to go through every single actor Of everything that we uh, Look forward to appreciating <laughs> And uh, make sure that there's uh, Nothing bad about their personalities I'm happy To keep watching Mandy Patinkin and things And uh, he's he Abandoned his children every time He got in a bad mood <sighs> really calling out Mandy Patinkin in this podcast, uh, I mean, over several episodes, more so in the Sontime and Adderall days. This episode is going to run long because I'm going off on tangents, and we're going to stop doing that now. We're going to get back to the task at hand. She loves me. The, the, the kid who's, you know, one of those musical theater things where you get an adult uh, that looks like a boy, playing a boy, wearing a little bow tie and suspenders. Uh, he, uh, that's the part that I felt that I wanted to play. That's why I have all of his songs memorized. There's a little device for time passing where he comes on in his bike and he says, Look! Autumn! And then some leaves fall. And look! Winter! And then some snow falls. It's stupid, but it's kind of cute. In this revival, which I'm using as the entry point here, um, you get Gavin Creel playing Stephen Kodai. It looks like it's Kodali, but it's pronounced Kodai. I saw him in the Into the Woods revival also playing Cinderella's Prince, so he's uh, the, he's very typecast in these two. He's great. He's very good at that, at being the smarmy um, libertine rake of the piece, the lady killer. He is the lady killer in this that connects it to the killer ladies from the first one, which again, really only exists so that I could have that as a title and link these two shows. He's very good. Uh, Jane Krakowski, of course, is in there playing Ilona. Now, Ilona, Jane Krakowski, you know her, of course, from 30 Rock. Uh, Jenna Maroney from 30 Rock. Her muffin top is all that, whole grain, low fat. I don't know, man. Um, I want to like Jane Krakowski. I liked Jane Krakowski back in the Allie McBeal days, put it that way. I said, oh, she's the, and I heard that she did musicals. I was like, ooh, I like her. And uh, I was attracted to her and I thought I liked her as an actress I think that after seeing her on 30 Rock And then seeing her in Kimmy Schmidt And then seeing her in a ton of other things uh, Most recently, uh, what's it called? Uh, Schmigadoon She really just has one mode And I wonder, does she really talk like that? Does she really say everything like this To people to whom she's speaking? Because I thought that that was a Jenna Maroney 30 Rock uh, thing But she does it for everything Or did she just get so caught up in uh, Jenna Maroney that that's just how she talks now every time she's uh, in front of a camera. I don't know. I'd like to hear an interview with Jane Kurkowski and see if she's just like, hey guys, how's it going? Or if she's like, hi everybody, welcome. The interesting thing about Elona and Kodai and their uh, thing, I mean there's definitely more sexual chemistry between them. It's, uh, it, 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 it's a mask-fatal situation flips it um also just to indulge in a little more celebrity news there at one point the daily mail reported that uh jane Krakowski was having an affair with the horrible my pillow man mike lindell and both of them said that's not true (laughs) and he tried to sue them but then uh, he he the lawsuit failed because the judge ruled that uh nobody that reads the daily mail uh should reasonably think that they report real news that's great we're having a this is a great society we live in. Tom McGowan plays the old man, Sipos. Uh, he's very good in it. I like Tom McGowan. Google image Tom McGowan because you've seen him in uh, hundreds of uh, films. He's a character actor we see all over the place. He's uh, terrific in this. Maybe the highlight. Maybe the best one in it. Um, so the whole thing with Mr. Maricek, uh he's introduced as a very uh, cheerful man, a good boss. He's buddies with George. George is his best employee and blah, blah, blah. Like, oh, he's a nice guy. And then, like, right away, scene two, he completely changes and starts being a prick. uh, Specifically to George. But just, he never smiles. He doesn't smile again for the rest of the first act. He's in a terrible mood. And it's weird. It is uh, 180. Um, And you find out why that happened a little bit later. But it is a very extreme uh, switch. Tonight at 8 is a song that George sings, and that is a God-tier song. It's one of the better songs in the show. I have sung it at the restaurant. It's fun because it's a patter song. Tonight I'll walk right up and sit right down beside the smartest girl in town, and then it's anybody's guess. More and more, I'm breathing less and less. I like it. Um, The songs are very well-crafted overall, uh, but they serve a story that's really just cute. I I, I think that's my answer. I think the songs are where this thing lies. Overall, the concept, the experience is a little iffy, but because the songs are well-made, it's good and of course they are because it's Bach and Harnik and they know what they're doing. Sipos Ladislav Sipos, the old man, sings a song called Perspective which I didn't give much attention to in my youth, but this time around it's an interesting song because at first it seems horrific Because George is about to get himself fired because his boss is being so awful to him and um, he's about to, like, uh, snap back. But the old man, Ladislav Sipos, like, tells him not to. And he sings this song. The verses are, uh, uh, what is it? God damn it. Call me a fool. That's all right with me. Here's my rule. Never disagree. Where's my pride? Swallowed long ago. Deep inside where it doesn't show. Uh, Yes, sir, yes, sir, you're so right, sir, black is white, sir, excuse me while I genuflect. And it's all about, yeah, that you should uh, just uh, not worry about yourself and just do whatever the fuck the boss says. And that seems, so that's awful, right? That's like, uh, what a horrible song. What a horrible sentiment. Are we supposed to like this old man with this terrible philosophy that just says uh, you should just be a worker bee and not have any pride? Um, It seems that way. But then there's this middle section where the song becomes uh, rather existential. Where he, he, he says, listen to an old Hungarian philosophy, and it becomes about uh, the, uh, the freedom inherent in the abandonment of pride, where he talks about the largeness of the universe, and this country is only one of many in this continent, in this, uh, this planet, the solar system, the universe and so in this uh, infinite incomprehensible scheme if a dot called marichek should scream at a speck called CPOS, what on earth does it matter i mean that's a pretty good way to look at life um it's not a great way to um you know look at labor maybe or to you know that's not what uh, that that should not be a rationale for bosses mistreating their employees but um you know, as somebody uh, with righteous anger uh, inherent in his soul that uh, wants to find peace, uh, I think that actually there is some there is some wisdom and some freedom in that. But also, uh, you know, if your boss is uh, yelling at you or uh, not respecting you or uh, violating your rights, you should probably do something about it. Go ahead and call uh, OSHA or whatever. Mr. marichek uh, like I said, so he's He's having his own—we find out that he's having his own private, personal Othello in the background here, where, um, you know, his wife is cheating on him. We find that out towards the end of the first act, a private detective, and the reason that he's been so mean to George is because he assumed it was George, because George uh, has been coming to their house for dinner, and it turns out actually it's this uh, Lothario asshole, uh, Kodai, and that is just so much more intense than the rest of the play. That scene where he meets the private detective. And that all happens in the scene. He forces them all to work late. George can't do it until so he quits after this fight with his boss. Amalia Balish can't do it because she's got a date. The reason that they both can't do it is because they have a date with each other but they don't know that and they hate each other. Uh, we didn't really talk about that. But yeah, that's the whole plot of the fucking show. But then we see the people working late and we got the song, Come With Me, Elona," which is a seduction. Elona um, and Kodai uh, have been on and off uh, screwing each other. And they're on the outs, and he's trying to get her back. And this song is, um, you know, she's like, Oh, why can't, why can't I not stop dancing with this man? I'm uh, enthralled by him. Mask Fatale. And at the same time, there's these other verses with these other two guys that are such cucks. Uh, Arpad and Seapost, the boy and the old man. And they're like, now that he's doing this, we'll never get out of here <laughs> until New Year's Day. And it's like, why do you let that happen? It's bad enough you gotta work late. It's like, now you have to work even later because this guy's wasting time uh, doing a cat and mouse thing with this lady. You, speak up, Sipos. God, Sipos, stick up for yourself. Like, there's, there's such a thing as balance. Find a Buddhist middle way between, uh, you know, uh, getting ups- yourself upset and uh, wasting your energy. And just letting everyone walk all over you, you fucking doormat. Then two seconds after that song, when they reconcile, Alona and Kodai, he's like, uh, I got a date tonight, baby. I'll see you later. And then right away she sings, I resolve not to be so stupid. I resolve not to be so dumb. The song feels long. Jane uh, Krakowski makes it very serious. She's like in tears when she sings it. I've seen other versions where it's just like, oh my God, what have I done? What an idiot. I am. I can't believe I let this guy do it to me again. The gender dynamics in this show are obviously very weird. Um, and this brings me to uh, a point. <laughs> Musical comedy actors in revivals of shows like this with uh, out of date values, they tend to like try to put a modern spin on it by really hamming it up. And I have a sense, and I could be wrong about this, that this uh, started with maybe Sutton Foster maybe she is the pioneer of this, of adding a very contemporary sensibility to um, an old-fashioned, like a, a, a sort of a reductive female role written by a man by making it goofy. And it's almost like, and it doesn't always work. I don't think it works here. Lauren Benanti is very good at it. Um, Stephanie J. Block in Into the Woods. I talked about this when I went and saw that. Like, she is not good at it. And I feel like she ruins that. And maybe that's because that character is written well and not one-dimensionally and and uh, misogynistically. But, um, yeah, Sutton Foster in, in um, fucking Anything Goes. Like, that seemed like the first version of that. Like, just sort of like, oh, huh. I, being very, uh, I'm not explaining this well. Also, Zachary Levi, he's kind of doing the same thing on the man side of things. Where everything is very big and very cutesy, and how dare you? And then everybody laughs, and it's, it's very. Uh, I don't like it uh, very much. But Laura Benanti is good. That was that was dumb. What I just said. All of that made no sense. Mr. Marichek and the detective. So that's yeah. It's a weirdly serious scene, and then so here's the moment that scared the living shit out of me. Um, Mr. Marichek, after he meets with the detective, he goes into the other room and the stage is completely quiet and then the little boy, Arpad, comes in, he's not a little boy, he's a young man, Uh, and he's just sort of looking around, hey, where'd everybody go? And then he goes off stage to where Mr. Marichek went and then when I saw it on stage, this kid, this man, young man, you hear him go, Mr. Marichek, no! And then there's a gunshot (laughs) and it was really scary. Uh, Mr. Marechek uh, shoots himself. We found out later he didn't die. Um, but what? It's it, it's out of nowhere in a play that's been all fun and games and 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 uh, cutesiness. And will they? Won't they? Fucking really strange moment. But because I am who I am, it's my favorite moment. <laughs> now, maybe even then. I mean, my heart was pounding when I saw that. And then it's kind of hard to switch gears. They go into a romantic atmosphere. you have uh, people we haven't met before, and they're in the restaurant after this very dire, serious scene with the private detective. It's a shame that people don't hire private detectives anymore to find out if their spouses are cheating on them. It's just so easy to do that yourself now, maybe. I don't know. Does it still exist as a thing? I figure out how to get into that field without going through, like, Cop, police training, or having to have a gun. Uh, what else? Yeah, uh, romantic atmosphere. In this version, of the uh, revival, one of the best performances, but is by uh, Peter Bartlett as the maitre d'. There is <laughs> very funny, uh, comic uh, relief, uh, caricature, <laughs> romantic atmosphere. But you get into a very long dance uh, with strangers that we have not met yet that are dancing. Breaking plates. It's another thing. Yeah. It's like if I worked in a fine dining restaurant like this and not like an old uh, semi-fine dining place with no supervision where I work in now, it's like, God, I would hate that. I would hate to have a boss tell me uh, if you break another plate like that, you'll get fired. And we're trying to create an atmosphere so you better comb your hair better. I would—I I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. I'm too much of an asshole. I'm too uh, willful. Tango Tragique is a song that uh, was cut from the revival and often gets cut from the show. I feel like it shouldn't be. I like it. I'll tell you of a lonely girl I knew. Her story, I fear, is tragic to hear. It's a nice one. And it's uh, it's George telling Amalie Abolish this, uh, a fake story. He knows now that she is who she is, and he's like fucking with her. And also the second part of this song which they didn't cut. Uh, that was at the count of five, I'll scream so you better go and soon. I forgot to mention, in the original cast of this, this part is played by Barbara Cook from the original Music Man. Um, I love Barbara Cook. I love her voice. I don't normally like a soprano. I tend to not like sopranos, but I like this particular soprano, Barbara Cook. And um, one thing that she does that's so funny on the OCR and the original cast recording, because she keeps threatening to scream. She says she's going to count to five. Uh, Did I say ten a second ago? Uh, Anyway, she says at the count of five, I'll scream, so you better go in soon. One, don't forget that I've had some wine and nothing to eat since noon. Two, and then eventually she goes, four, four and a half, will you go? Then five. And the way that she screams is she goes, whoop, 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 whoop. And that's really funny to do in a, in a restaurant where we've just been told, uh, please keep your voice down. We're trying to have a romantic atmosphere. That's better than just a normal scream. So um, good job, Barbara Cook. And then, so after that all happens, um, she gets very harsh with George. <laughs> He's being a dick, obviously. But she says, um, she calls him a not very nice man who is balding and who sells shampoo and in 20 years will always be selling shampoo. I will say um, th- uh, that is my biggest fear. I'm in school <laughs> and I'm uh, taking the LSAT a-, a week from Wednesday and uh, spending most days of my life now uh, hating myself for not studying harder for it. But uh, the idea, you know, there are some waiters at this restaurant that uh, that's what they've been doing for 20 years. And God bless them. I mean, if that brings them happiness, fine. It does seem like uh, you just become angrier and angrier. As the years go by, if you just are always, uh, you know, selling in the service industry, maybe not. I I feel like I feel like not. Actually, I think that there's probably a way. It's possible not. Put it that way. It's the same thing. Yeah, the anger and uh, maybe sometimes dovetails with working in the service industry for several decades. Um, but it, the two don't do not have to coincide necessarily. You could get a very zen idea about it and then just completely separate it from the rest of your life. Um, the sitting and waiting, while well, uh, the date never arrives at the restaurant, it's a old cliche. It's an old trope. You're sitting there and the waiter's like, oh, "Can I get you anything else?" Oh, he's he's not here. Uh, I've been there It wasn't that dramatic When I did it Because it was like A first date During my OK Cupid addiction days and, uh, and it was at a Starbucks So I kind of Flew under the radar Sat in a Starbucks Waited for a lady That never showed up The cover story um, After intermission We find out that Mr. Marichek is still alive He has his arm in a sling And he's in the hospital The cover story That they're going to Tell everybody Because they don't want them To know that he Tried to kill himself Is that he accidentally Shot himself While cleaning his gun That's uh, very strange the 60s were, I guess, a different time, in the 50s and the 60s, that that would be something that somebody would believe. Why do you have a gun in your perfumery, first of all? It's like when, um, what's his name, in Mad Men, the uh, Vincent Carthizer character, what the fuck is his name, Pete Campbell? Like when he buys a fucking rifle and then like walks down uh, through Times Square with it and then has it in the office. It's like if you do that now, you're gonna go to jail for the rest of your life. Mr. Marichak has a gun that he was cleaning in his office, and then it went off. Weird. Arpad, the kid, sings uh, Try Me, which is left over in my head, because, like I said, I wanted to play the part. Because, again, this is another example. I have this weird... I used to have this weird image of myself as this diminutive little guy that had to play these little parts. And those were the parts that I would strive for. I will gladly do and anything you like, Mr. Marachek. Try me. I guess it's not that much in my head. I just had to fudge those lyrics. Um, so here's the thing. He tells George to take over. And he tells George to fire Kodai. Because, uh, as we learned, Kodai has been fucking his wife. You can't fire a guy for fucking your wife. Now, I'm sure the laws may have been different at this time in Budapest. Those hairy hounds from Budapest. Uh, you were allowed to fire a Rudapest <laughs> when he fucked your wife. But I, morally... You can't do that. And they say, oh, you want to fire him? He's like your best salesman. That's kind of uncool. You know, you don't have to like him. But People should be able to fuck the boss's wife with impunity and keep their jobs. That's all I'm trying to say. It's not a great thing to fuck someone's wife, but you didn't hire the guy to be a moralist. You hired him to sell shampoo. It's kind of like not seeing Shazam 2 because you don't like the politics of the uh, actor in it. I don't think Kodai should have been fired. And I'm not a big fan of Kodai is what I'm saying. But uh, Mr. Marichek should think twice before doing that. It's not very cool. The scene in Amalia Bolish's bedroom when she's... uh, That's a great scene with two really good songs. The first one, Where's My Shoe? I sing this song all the time when I'm looking for my other shoe. Where's my other shoe? Help me find my other shoe. I will do that in my house looking for a shoe. The problem with the song is the fact that she's jumped to such a conclusion. She's catastrophizing. He comes there and says that he's back at Marichek's and she's there sick. And she's like, so you're here to make sure I'm not really sick. All right, well, fuck you. I'll go to work and then start singing this song and won't listen. And it's a little bit like, you know. It's like, uh, uh, I think, uh, the, the, somebody has said at some point that the, uh, the show Three's Company, like every episode of Three's Company could have been solved with a post-it note without a mistaken identity or a you know misperceived thing that leads to hilarity. It's like, that's kind of going on in this song. It's like, no, Amalia, calm down. He's not fucking like doing that. If you, and if you just let him answer you for two seconds, you would know that. But, uh, you know, luckily we get that song. And now I have a song to sing when I'm looking for my other shoe. The song after that, a uh, big uh, audition cut favorite for soprano singers is Vanilla Ice Cream. Great song, uh, great uh, musical theater thing because it has the two things that it does. It has her trying to write a letter to her to dear friend who she does not yet know is George and then like stopping in the middle to marvel at the fact that George brought her vanilla ice cream and that maybe she likes George now. So she thinks it's two different guys. Uh, The show is very fat-phobic and bald-phobic, I'll tell you that. We already dealt with the fat-phobia earlier. Uh, But yeah, here, he says, oh, I met your guy, dear friend, and he's fat and he's bald. And she just cannot deal with that. Never knowing that you were fat. I mean, never knowing that you were near. Like, she can't stop thinking about it. You were outside looking bald. Whoops. Um, I'm a little bald-phobic myself, to be honest with you. Um, And I I don't don't say that proudly. Proudly. But uh, and, and it's probably, I, I think karma is going to get me on that at some point. My father uh, died with a, a full head of wavy hair. And I think uh, one of my best uh, attractive qualities is the, the, the volume of my hair. God, this is gross, what I'm doing right now. Um, and so uh, I tend to uh, punch down and uh, have contempt for bald people. That's not very nice. It's, it's not something about myself I like. I'm calling myself out. I'm never going to do that again. I I, I accept you, bald people. You are safe in the uh, confines of my heart. (sighs) I'm a little tired of this episode. I just hit two hours. But I'm at the end of the show here, so I think we can get out of it. The title song, She Loves Me. That's a fun song, and it's catchy. I think it may be a little upstaged by Vanilla Ice Cream, though. Because Vanilla Ice Cream is so good. Uh, it's Zachary Levi's best moment Just the way that he does that And the way that he uh, cartwheels around And kicks his fucking hat up into the air And puts it back on his head I like that I do not like the song Trip to the Library That's also a famous Or a favorite um, audition cut I mean, first of all It's it's kind of regressive That this woman Who uh, Her whole uh, problem Was that she was having sexual urges and kept dating this uh, the Lothario. She's like cured of having sexual urges by dating an erudite optometrist who didn't touch her when they uh, went home and only read to her all night long. Like that's her happy ending. Uh, so that sucks. And then pacing wise it sucks. I feel like uh, we, we need to end the show and I don't need a long story being told by Ilona, a character that I don't care for very much. We find out that this old man, Ladislav Sipos, who did that uh, song we talked about earlier that was very existential, we find out he's a bit of a fucking snake. He's the one that wrote the anonymous letter to Mr. Marichek that someone was fucking his wife. And he didn't do it because he loves Mr. Marichek so much. He did it because business was slow and he thought if he informed on a co-worker then that guy would get fired and he could save his job. That's real shitty. And especially for a show that's supposed to be... um, Whatever that New York Times episode, uh, uh, New York Times article said about it's about the common working person. That's fucked up. It doesn't work, first of all, and I didn't really address that because I didn't read that part of the article. Sorry if you were confused by what I just said. It's it's not a a show that celebrates the dignity of the working class for that reason, and for the fact that Mister Marichak is a fucking small business tyrant. I'm not even sure what a small business tyrant is, but if there is one, it's Mr. Marichek, because he treats George like shit, and then he fires Kodai for fucking his wife. Unfortunately, Kodai, when he gets fired, he sings for way too long about it. A very forgettable song called Grand Knowing You. And like I said, there's some filler. Uh, Towards the end, my least favorite song is this Christmas song. 12 days for Christmas, 12 days for Christmas, how are we going to... Plenty of time to do our Christmas shopping. And then each verse, there's less time till Christmas, and the tempo uh, gets faster and faster. And then it's like, oh, we're panicking. One day till Christmas, one day of Christmas. How will we ever do our Christmas shopping? And it's sort of, these are the people who shop in time, shop in time, plenty of time. And it's like, oh, we've all been there, right, guys? (laughs) It kind of exposes the lightweight emptiness of the show. That it's not, yeah, it's really just supposed to be for us uh, to be like, (laughs) I certainly (laughs) don't do my Christmas shopping early. I've been there. And then the show really peter's out with no actual finale or without a satisfying finale. It's just George and Amalia, uh, she finally, Jesus, and it takes forever, uh, discovers that he is dear friend. That's what she hoped for that it was you. And then there's so they're singing a reprise of vanilla ice cream. They stop the song right in the middle of it to kiss while the song keep, the music keeps going and then the curtain comes down. The end. Um in a way, I guess it's refreshing because there tends to be a little too much Crash Boom Bang in uh, modern musical theater. So this is just uh, is a very simple ending between two people. But I don't know, there's something missing about it. It could just be because that Christmas song is so bad. That that Christmas song sucks as a closing number. And it doesn't feel like it sums anything up. What was the point of any of that? I That we're just selling stuff at Christmas. I don't like She Loves Me very much. I used to. I do like the songs. That's all I have to say today, everybody. This has been I Need You To Like Musicals. I don't think we're going to do an episode next week. And I got to tell you one other thing. We may not do one the week after either. I'm going to try. I got a lot coming up. I got that 40th birthday that I mentioned. And I have the fuck, the LSAT. And I have to... God. I have to... Speaking of Othello... I have to do a creative prospectus for a creative project based on something from British literature. And I'm choosing Othello. I'm going to write a a folk song, a a folk ballad uh, from the perspective of Michael Cassio and Othello. That's my plan anyway. I have to write a prospectus about it. It's due in 48 hours. Fuck. So much to do. I have to clean the house. I need to end this episode. I don't have a closing line. Give me two seconds. Here we go. Oh yes, oh yes, oh yes, we all, oh yes, we all, oh yes, we all finish the pod, the pod, the pod, the pod. Oh yes, we all finish the pod. Fuck yourself. All right. Bye, everybody. I'll see you uh, whenever I see you. And until next time, I love you, honey. I love you.